The sermon text this morning is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have justified, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you say that most Christians are happy people? I mean, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, would you, would you say that that happiness or joyfulness kind of characterizes your life? Or the other Christians you have known, would you say that they're generally happy people? I mean, many Christians I've seen struggle with a degree of happiness. We struggle with a degree of loving God, adoring Him, and finding Him to be really sufficient for life, even in the midst of struggles. And I'd propose to you a possible reason for that. Uh, one reason may be the fact that... Um, that we don't understand what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, it's a term reductionism. Reductionism is a term, uh, it, it can mean a lot of things, but what it means is we're trying to reduce something complex into something simple. We break it down into parts so we can understand the whole. The problem is reductionism often, we break it down too far. We make it too simple. We make it even simplistic. So let me give you an example of reductionism. So when someone comes up to you and says, well, you say, what's Christianity like? Well, Christianity is like um, the golden rule. You know, treat others as you want to be treated. And, and so you want to reduce this complex idea of God's glory down to a golden rule. We'd say that's reductionistic. Well, I think the reason that we don't have a lot of joy as Christians is because we take this work of God in the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died and been raised again, seated at the right hand, and it doesn't produce happiness for us because we, we relegate it or reduce it down to, well, it's, you get to go to heaven or you don't have to go to hell. We take the gospel and we reduce it to this, to this simplistic understanding of you don't have to burn in the fires of hell. Well, I think there's a lot more to it. And I think that's what Paul's getting to in chapter 5 of Romans. I think he's trying to unpack, he's trying to unwrap this gospel. He's trying to show us, listen, this is unbelievable. If you get a grip on this, trust me, you will be a happy, happy person. You'll be satisfied in life. You'll adore God. Now, if you have just come this week or in the last few weeks, we studied the first four chapters back in the spring. We're picking it back up with five, chapter 5, verse 1 now. Paul, in the first four chapters, he was like an attorney. He, he was trying to present an argument. 
And in the first four chapters, he was explaining how, listen, all people, Jew or Greek, you're all under sin. In other words, we've all failed to live before God as we ought. So he kind of said it this way in chapter one. He says, you didn't give thanks to God. Now, all of us are breathing, we're living, it's his creation, we're his creation on his creation. How often did we give him thanks? He says, you didn't honor him as God. How many times have we honored God? Make sure that I'm honored, but I haven't spent a lot of time worried about honoring God. He's saying you have fallen short of the glory of God. And as such, God as creator, you're under his judgment. Now, if we just stop there, we'd be in trouble. Paul in the first three chapters just paints us in the corner and he says, listen, this is who you are. This is what God is. This is who he is. And what do we do? How do we get right with God? How can we be reconciled to God? That's kind of the dilemma. Well, thankfully, Paul goes on after explaining our need for salvation, and he tells us about this Jesus who is the way of salvation. And in that fourth chapter, the end of three in chapter four, we learn that, that Christ himself has come to suffer and die for our sins. It's mind-bending, right? He's come to be our substitute and that God will forgive us because of the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, all the Old Testament promises that were given to Abraham, uh, the promises of a, of a home and a land and, and promises of life forever with God, they were fulfilled in Jesus so that now Jew and Greek come to faith, come to salvation through faith in Christ. So that's what he's doing in the first four chapters. But in chapter five, he's no longer an attorney. He's more of a cheerleader. He's trying to encourage us about the greatness of the faith that we have. And so he's going to unpack it for us. He's going to begin to explain, this is what you have if you have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have this. So it's, it's very simple. And we're going to see in the first four verses, we're going to see the benefits of salvation. We love benefits. Benefits make us happy. These benefits should surely make us happy. And then in 5 to 8, he's going to pivot, and he's going to explain to us the foundation of our salvation. In other words, what is it resting on? Is it resting on you being a good, moral, religious person? If it is, we kind of go like this in happiness. But if it's resting on the love of God, that solid and sure love of God that we just sang about, then we're going to be happy. And then the last part, in 9 to 11, he begins to look forward into the heavens, and he says, what comes to you if you're a child of God? What is your future? We love to know the future. He tells us about it. So we'll look at those three things. First, the benefits of salvation. There's a bunch of things in here. If you look with me in verse 1, look at what Paul says. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and there's a lot of heavy terms in here, and I'll try to explain them as we go along. Uh, they're kind of big theological weighty terms, but they're understandable. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So here's a benefit. You have peace with God. Now, that won't make any sense to you if you don't understand the conflict that you had with God. Peace doesn't really matter if you don't think you have conflict. And that's what those chapters in 1, 2, and 3 are about, right? We just talked about that we have fallen short of God. We haven't lived for his glory. We've lived for our own. We've ignored him. Perhaps you haven't been defiant to God, but maybe just ambivalent. But if he is the creator, ambivalence to the creator who gives you life is a great offense. It can be the fact that you exchanged, as Winston prayed, we've exchanged God's glory. Instead of finding God to be most desirable, 
we've found ourselves or one another or things in this world. So all these things have put us into conflict with God. It wouldn't make sense to rejoice over peace if we didn't understand the conflict. But here's the rub. Most of us at one point in our life didn't know that God had a problem with us. We just thought, I don't have a problem with God. If I don't have a problem with God, then he must not have a problem with me. Well, that's not necessarily true. It doesn't follow. I mean, the Bible, in fact, one author just recently passed away. He wrote these words. He says, there is an age-old difference between the way natural man sees the problem in his relationship with God and the way the Bible sees the problem of man's relationship to God. Man-centered humans, that is, humans that are centered on ourselves, we're amazed that God should withhold his life and joy from us. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold his judgment from us. Where are you on this? I mean, did you see in your life that point of time where you had an issue with God, or at least he had an issue with you? See, until you understand the conflict, the peace of God isn't that big a deal. But if you do understand it, if you get the conflict, and you see that Jesus has justified us, and now for we have peace with God, that's big news. That's really big news. But let me, under, let me help you understand justification. Remember, justification is a theological term. It just means you're declared innocent. So if you're standing before God, and he's the judge, he says you're innocent. That's what it means. Uh, let me give you an example of it. And this person shared with me a couple of weeks ago, and it was, I found it helpful. So if you take two pieces of paper and you put them on the desk, <clears throat> you put on the first piece, Tom Mercer, and you begin to list his sins. And, and you list all the things that he has done, all the things that he has said, all the things that he wanted to do that he couldn't do, but would have if he could have, and all the attitudes, all the things not done. I mean, think about that list. It would fill up at least an index card. But it would be reams, right? If you listed everything down. And then on the other piece of paper, you put Jesus Christ. And what would you record under his name? It'd be nothing. He has no sin. So you have Tom Mercer with reams of paper of sin, and you have Jesus Christ. Well, here's what justification is. You cross out Tom Mercer, put Jesus Christ, and you cross out Jesus Christ and put Tom Mercer. Now, I am sinless because he bore my sins. He took them upon himself. I am innocent before God because I have a substitute who has paid for my sins. That's what justification is. Now, if you, if you get that justification brings peace, then you're going to rejoice. But the peace it brings is not a subjective peace necessarily. It's not something you get from meditation or doing hot yoga. It, this is an objective peace. This is a, it's a legal peace. In other words, the conflict that was opposing you or that stood between you and God, that was reconciled. In other words, sins have been forgiven. Debts have been paid. Guilt has been removed. Shame over your sin has been cleansed. You have a new relationship. You're now a friend to God. You're now intimate with God. You have peace with God. He no longer is bringing justice to bear on you. That's the nature of, of peace. So peace with God then brings about that subjective, the peace of God. Have you felt this? 
Have you felt the burden of your sins lifted when you confessed to God? Have you felt the joy of being reconciled to God, feeling once I was estranged, but now I'm brought near? Have you felt that joy? You know, all of us need peace with God. All of us do. Listen, you don't have to be the worst of sinners to need to hear this. Religious people need this peace. So you have the parable of the um, parable of the prodigal son. If you remember that parable, there's a man, he has two sons, and the younger son asks for his, his inheritance prematurely, of course. The father's still alive, and he takes it, and he goes and goes crazy living on it and spends it all. But then he comes to his senses, and he realizes, you know what? My father was a good father, and I have sinned against him. And so he repents and, and runs home to repent to his father. He finds his father running out to him when he's running to him. And, of course, they have a sweet reunion. The father puts a ring on his finger, robe on his back, and they throw a big party, and they begin to celebrate. Why? Because peace brings joy. We're happy. Peace is now being established. But you have the older brother. And the older brother comes in once he hears the noise. And he's standing outside, and he's saying, what are you doing throwing a party for this boy that wasted all your money? And he says, he's repented. He was dead, but now he's alive. And the older brother, who's the righteous brother, he's the brother that stayed home. He was the dutiful brother. He's not in the party, and he's not rejoicing. He doesn't understand that he needs the same grace that the younger brother needed. He just needed to repent of his righteousness. He didn't need to repent of his sin. Now the parable ends, and you don't know what happens. You don't know if he goes in the party or not. He's just outside. That's the way it ends. I hope that's not you. I, I hope you're not clinging to a sense of self-righteousness. I, I hope that you're not resting in the religion that you've somehow mastered or the life that you've lived that's better morally than other people or some prior commitment to some religious organization. I hope that's not you because he's the one not rejoicing. The wild living younger son, he's having a party because peace has been made. So that's a benefit. If you're a Christian here, you have peace with God. You are reconciled to him. Uh, but, but look at the second benefit in the very next line. He says this, he says, what we have here, the second benefit is that you have access to God. You can speak with God. Look what he says there. Uh, I think it's in verse two. He says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the Christian now stands in the grace of God. He doesn't stand condemned. He doesn't stand as guilty. He stands accepted. That's the idea of access. Access, that Greek word, it kind of means entrance into royalty or introduction into royalty. In other words, you used to not be able to just walk into royalty, but now you're a son or you're a daughter, and now you have access to the king. You have his ear. It wasn't always this way. I mean, if you've read a little bit of your Old Testament, you know that there was always a veil between the people of God and the presence of God. The people of God couldn't enjoy the presence of God. It wasn't until Jesus died. And then what happened to the veil? It cut in two. This heavy-duty veil that had never been impacted, seasons and years and time did not affect it. But Jesus dies, the curtain is ripped in two, and we have access to God. Now, you know, if you've lived long enough, that access usually means help or power. I mean, if I can just access a political leader or military brass or a business executive, I mean, that's a good thing. It's kind of like you walk into the emergency room 
but your father is the attending physician. There's no worries for you. There's no wait. There's no lines. There's no hassle. You just walk right in. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you have God has given you free access because of what Jesus Christ has done. This means that any time you're in a point of trouble, a point of joy, he inclines his ear to you. The one who's created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them listens to you. He invites you to himself. Do you exercise that privilege? Do you enjoy that? I mean, do you take advantage? So, so when you look at your life in the past two weeks, how often have you just appealed to God? How often have you just walked right in? Would you say that you're not maximizing this benefit? Because to have access to God, I mean, you can't get a human operator to answer the phone when you're calling some company. And to have God, not at your beck and call, but available to you. you know, J.I. Packer, is a, he's a current theologian. He wrote these words. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. How much do you make of that thought? Does it mean anything to you? Does it mean great things to you? How much does it mean to you that you, if you're a Christian, that you're a child of God? Do you think about it? Are you happy over it? Do you express your appreciation to him? Do you utilize the access that he has given to you? That's a benefit. Why should Christians be happy? You have peace with God, you have access to God, but you have even more. Look in the next verse. He says that you have a hope in the glory of God. He says that. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You will see God. Now, I know this is starting to get transcendent kind of language here, but there is a day that each one of us will die and we will stand before God. For the Christian, that is a hope-filled day. Now, when I say hope, I don't mean hope like we use it. We use hope kind of like wishful thinking. You know, we desire a certain outcome, but we really can't know if it's going to come true or not. So I hope that it's going to be sunny out tomorrow because I may go to the beach. You know, that's wishful thinking. The Bible doesn't use hope that way. The Bible speaks about hope as a future certainty because it's based on a past accomplishment. The fact that Jesus Christ has already died is what guarantees or makes certain the hope that we have. And this hope that he's promising to us, so this is a benefit still of salvation, that you will see God. Your lives will be transformed. You know, all the moral transformation you try to do to yourself, and some of it's good, it's right. All the things you wish you could change. As you get older, then all the things that start to break down, not just in your body, but in your mind, all of that transformed. You will be like him because you're going to see him. Peace. Can you imagine the beauty of God? You know, our world is a beautiful place. If our world's beautiful, what do you think will be the one who made the world? Wouldn't it be more beautiful? Can you imagine, the scriptures seem to indicate that we participate in the glory of God. I, I don't even know how that will be. To experience God in fullness, face to face with the creator of all things, who has created billions of stars with a word. Can you imagine what his presence will be like? And that's the hope that you have. Should that not make us happy? It should. If, if you think about what it is, that you will face, and how he will love you. That is incredible. 
But notice what happens in verse 4. He knows we live in this world. Paul is, he's a surgeon, a spiritual surgeon. And look at what he says. Because he says that we'll rejoice in the hope of glory. And then he says, and we'll rejoice in sufferings. Now we're getting some feet on the ground here. Because we all suffer. These sufferings are, it can be, it can be cancer, it can be a bad marriage, it can be tough financial times, it can be horrible parenting, it could be just a, a pornography problem. It, it, can be, it can be a lot of things that we have struggles with. And, and do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying that he has the same attitude when he looks at present sufferings as he has with future glory. He's rejoicing over sufferings. Now, this is counterintuitive. I mean, nobody rejoices over sufferings. I mean, think about it. I mean, sufferings make us angry, or they make us despairing, or they, they cause God to feel distant. You know, sufferings actually can threaten to crush faith. Surely you would agree with me that when you suffer, it undermines your hope in God, and yet Paul says it actually produces hope in God. How does that work? Do you get that? Suffering produces hope. It doesn't undermine it. Well, how? Well, there's this chain reaction it gives us in verses 3 and 4. He says that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces a character that is solid, and that character begins to produce hope. So let me just explain this quickly to you. That suffering produces perseverance. You know what suffering does? If you have suffered, you've been given bad news, you got the call from the doctor, you, you have bad news thrown to you, it clarifies your thinking. You're not worried about the 13th issue on your to-do list. You begin to realize, you think with a crystal clarity. Life comes into focus. You don't fool around with the, with the popcorn stuff anymore. There is a, there's a laser beam in your mind on what's important. Things become more real to you. I remember my brother, when he was dying... He said, I smell roses differently. There's a clarity. And, and God is giving you grace to see things the way they need to be seen, to persevere you through the trial. Suffering under God's name brings about a clarity of thought that perseveres you through the issue. And, and that continuing with God, even in the midst of suffering, begins to form a character. That word for character actually is testedness. It's like metal being tested in a fire. It comes out refined. It comes out pure. That's what happens to us. The Christian going through suffering, persevering, comes out stronger. You are changed to be more like Christ just as he went through suffering. And as you begin to see your character change, then hope starts to come because you know God's at work. You know God's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. In fact, you begin to sense that not only, not only is God my possession, but I'm, I'm actually his possession. And you begin to realize, I have, I have hope. I, I have hope. So, so this, this rejoicing in sufferings, because why? Because it produces a hope. It produces a change that leads us to be prepared to see God. Let me give you a couple examples. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, he says, the present sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that's to come. So Paul 
was able to rejoice in the glory, but he could also rejoice in the suffering as they were bringing him to glory. Now, we see this in life. So let me give you a couple more kind of fleshly examples here to make this clear. Um, So as a CPA, you know, when I was a CPA, um, during tax season, it was grueling hours and a lot of uptight people, and it was not a pleasant time. It was always the vacation, if you will, that followed April 15th that kind of gave you the resolve to move through the grueling nature of those months of tax preparation. That's a simple example. But, but it kind of shows you that, that something glorious on the other side allows us to move through. But here's the, here's the key with the Christian. It's the suffering, actually, that does the work. So I preached on Lilius Trotter last week. She is that woman that went to Algeria back in the late 19th century, And here's what she wrote about suffering. Um, She wrote this, and she references, uh, so so God made all things, and all things display God's glory. So it seems reasonable to use the creation to understand God in greater measure. And so that's what she did a lot of. She says this. She says, she talks about this gorse bush, which is a, a bush in North Africa. She said, the whole year round, the thorn has been hardening and sharpening. Then spring comes, the thorn does not drop off, and it doesn't soften. There it is, as uncompromising as ever. But halfway up the thorn, the thorn itself, appear two brown furry balls, mere specks at first, that break at last, straight out of last year's thorn, into a blaze of fragrant golden glory. She says, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but rather grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it has yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. So she says, never mind if the trouble shows no sign of giving way. It is just when it seems most hopelessly unyielding, holding on through the spring days alive and strong, It is then that the tiny buds appear and soon will clothe it with glory. So she says, take the hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward and inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that spot. Just there he can bring your soul into blossom. That's what God does. He takes these trials and out of them bloom character and hope. Now, if you're you're here today, and you're not a Christian, I get, I get it. It doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? It's like, how can anyone... How can anyone really rejoice in suffering? I, I mean, what suffering does is, is for you, if you're not a Christian, it, it's a fearsome event. I mean, suffering is something you want to avoid like the plague. I mean, you either decide that God must be cruel or careless or casual... But you have no answer for suffering. But you're still going to face it, but you have no answer. The gospel helps the Christian understand suffering different. Because if God has not spared his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he take care of us in the suffering? Won't he make sure that we're going to be okay, that he will draw that suffering to a point of completion? 
Paul knows that we're going to struggle with this suffering, and that's why he goes, look in verse 5, because after talking about the benefits of salvation, this peace with God, access, and rejoicing in the hope of the glory, look what happens in verse 5. He just talks on suffering. He knows that we're going to be confused. He knows that we're going to think, but suffering might jeopardize my salvation. And so he moves right in chapter 5 to try to alleviate the confusion, and he says this, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. What he does is he's trying to help you understand that even as you are in the midst of suffering, that your salvation is not in jeopardy. It's not in jeopardy. How do you know? Because you are being saved by the very love of God. God's love saves you. It it isn't rooted in your performance. While you were sinners, Christ died for you. It's objective. It's historical. He has died for you. He didn't wait for you to get kind of good he didn't look at the possibilities that lay before you. It was Look at all the terms he uses. Weak, ungodly, enemies, sinners. All these are terms that he describes. See, what I want you to see, and, and look at verse 7, actually. Because in, in verse 7 he says, and one would not even die for a righteous man. You wouldn't die for, none of us would die for a wicked man. But he did. He died for us while we were ungodly. Now, I don't want you thinking that he died because we're so special or that somehow he couldn't be in in heaven and happy without us. The display is of his love. So while we were at our worst, he is at his best. He He has saved us because he is full of love, not because of our potential. We're to be mesmerized. Your salvation, even in the midst of suffering, should never feel in jeopardy because it was never rooted in your performance. It was rooted in his love. And this objective love is to be experienced by you. Notice in verse 5, what does it say? It says, and his love was poured into your hearts through the Spirit. You are to experience the love of God. And this is one mark of being a Christian. How much do you sense God's love for you? How much do you love God? Do you adore him or do you endure him? Do you love him? That's part of the issue. You know, Charles Spurgeon said these words, and I've been accused of quoting Spurgeon a bit in my sermons. I didn't last week, just for the record, but I will this week. And here's what he says, very hopeful I'm looking for it. There it is. He says, looking at the cross, we must ask, does he love me more than him who hangs on the tree? You do. Think about it. Looking at the cross, does he love me? The implication is, I think he loves me more. Because I'm not hanging on the cross. He put his son on the cross. He loves us. It's the love of God. I mean, if if right now you're just struggling and you're saying, I am so wicked, he cannot love me. You're not called to look at the performance or lack of performance. You're called to look at his love for you. He's chosen to love you. You know love is a choice if you're older than eight years. You know love is a choice. If you're struggling with, well, how, how could he even love me? You know, we have that, he loves me, he loves me not. We bounce back and forth. We have to go to the cross. The cross is the greatest demonstration of love. If you don't sense the love of God, then ask him for it. Ask him. Plead with him. 
Say, God caused me to sense your love. Let his spirit fill you with grace that you can feel his love. I want to. So you have the benefits of salvation in 1 to 4. You see this love of God as the foundation of salvation. But then he stops looking backwards, and now he looks forward. And look with me at 9 to 11, and let me just pull this together. In 9 to 11, he returns to that same phraseology in verse 1. He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, that's virtually what he's saying in verse 1, he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved. More than that, we shall rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus. Think about what's happening here. Do you see him say how much, much more, more than that? It's kind of like stairs going up into the second floor. He's showing us that salvation is more than being saved from wrath. It is that, and we need that. It's more than that. So if you've thought of salvation as, I'm not going to hell, you've, you've shot too low on your target. It's even more than being saved by his life. If you thought heaven is just eternal life and I get to live forever, you've shot too low again. Those are both true, but they're inadequate in describing what he's done. Look in verse 11. This is the end goal. This is the good or the great of the good news. He says, more than that, we shall rejoice in God. That word rejoice, we shall boast in God. We shall exult in God. We will be in the very presence of God, fully perfected, seeing his beauty, enjoying his glory, free from every trial and trouble and struggle that we've ever had. This is the end goal. This is the ultimate goal of salvation. It isn't simply to leave you, to help you flee the troubles of this world, but it's to bring you to God. This is what you were designed for. You are excited about a new car. You get excited about a good health report from the doctor. You get excited when your hair is good. Sorry, ladies. I'll pay for that one later. Trust me. We get excited about the simplest little things in life, and yet he's saying, you will see God, and this is what you're designed for. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He was a, he was a pastor in New England in the 18th century. Just hang with me on this. It's about half a minute. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of. He is our highest good. He's the sum of all that's good. God is the inheritance of the saints. He's the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, food, life, dwelling place. He says they have none in heaven but God. He is the great God which the redeemed are received to at death and to which they are to rise at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He's the river of the water of life and the tree that grows in the midst of the paradise, the glorious and excellencies and the beauty of God will be what forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels and each other and in anything else whatsoever that will yield them any delight and happiness will be what will be seen of them, or what will be seen of God in them. If this is of no interest to you, then you're probably not a Christian. 
to not want to see God is to pretty much say, yeah, probably not a Christian. But if this is a growing passion in you that I want to see God, then it's evidence that God's Spirit's working within you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I know you want this. I, I, I mean, it is fundamental to humanity that we want this. We know the world is not as it should be. We want something more. You pursue things, and you know they never satisfy for very long. I have to give this quote from C.S. Lewis once a year. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, in other words, if there are things you want that will never be satisfied in this world, he says, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. You were made to be with God. I would encourage you to not waste these words, to not waste the benefits of salvation by trying to continue to find joy in this world when it comes first from God. Then actually, you'll actually enjoy all the other blessings of the world in a right manner and in a right way. But if you're a Christian here, how, how much does your heart long for God? You know, age helps us a little bit as we get older and we begin to see that the day comes faster. But how much do you long for God? Can you pray to want more of God? Can you long for the change? You know, our, our vision of the future is to, what, is to what changes us today. So, you know, we're about 115 days away from Christmas. And uh, as you know, that's kind of a special time in my life each year. And Ebenezer Scrooge has much to teach us. Now, I want to use an example, and I want to twist it a little bit to make it make sense for you. Ebenezer Scrooge, if you remember, he's with the third ghost, the ghost of Christmas future. Now, remember, he's being threatened with his damnation. So that's not what I'm talking about exactly. But he sees the nature of the future. And he sees that for him, it will be damnation. And so he repents, as it were, for Charles Dickens. And here's what he says. Here's the joy and the happiness that comes. He says this. He says, I don't know what to do. I'm like light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. Then he says, a Merry Christmas to everybody. He's been changed because he sees the nature of the future. Now, for him, it was damnation. But for us, it's to be in the presence of God. The knowledge of that ought to change the way we live now. It affects us. It gives meaning and purpose to our lives now. It allows us to endure suffering now. 